Welcome to the Transatlanticist at the America Centrum in Hamburg. As always, I am your host, Andrew Sola. Almost exactly 20 years ago, after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, which targeted the World Trade Center towers in New York City, as well as the Pentagon, the last U.S. soldiers have finally departed Afghanistan. In an address to the nation on August 31st, President Biden declared that the war in Afghanistan, the longest war in American history, is officially over. The past several weeks have been a roller coaster of emotions for the millions of people who have been affected by the war. Elation and sadness, pride and guilt, relief and fear, and also anger, betrayal, and sorrow. And of course, there has been a lot of hysterical political talk coming from all directions. However, on today's episode, we will not discuss our feelings about the war, nor will we discuss current politics. Instead, we will take a step back, detach ourselves from the turmoil of the present, and examine a number of theoretical perspectives that help us understand the world better. So how do we conceive of the national interest? How do we even understand relations between nations? And how does the domestic political situation shape foreign policy decisions? In short, today we will discuss the past, present, and future of thinking about U.S. foreign policy. And I'm delighted that I have the perfect guest today to guide us through these complex ideas, Professor Stephen Durand. Welcome, Steve. Hi. Thanks for having me. It's great that you're here. Professor Durand, now retired, has worked and taught in the fields of international relations, public policy, and technology for 30 years. He has worked for a variety of educational, governmental, and private organizations, including the U.S. Department of Defense, as well as think tanks in Washington, D.C., he holds a bachelor's degree from Michigan State University, a master's in international relations from the University of South Carolina, and he has completed his doctoral coursework in international relations at the University of Denver. Prior to retirement, he taught American government, American history, international relations, and political science on NATO bases in Europe for the University of Maryland. His research interests are U.S. foreign policy, as well as non-traditional international security issues, such as infectious disease, development, global health, and migration. And on a personal note, whenever something happens in the world that I find confusing, and I need a clear head to talk me through it, my first port of call is Professor Durand. So again, thanks for being here. And we have a wide variety of topics to discuss today. Three big sections. First, a brief overview of the prevailing theories about foreign policy. Second, 
We'll discuss how these theories explain the rationale behind the war in Afghanistan. And lastly, since President Biden has ended the war in Afghanistan, we'll assess his efforts to articulate a new national security and foreign policy strategy, which some are calling the Biden Doctrine. I don't know if it's a fully-fledged doctrine yet, but we'll try to tease it out today. So let's get into the heavy theory to start, Steve, and why don't you just give us a short overview of how we can understand international relations and international security theory. Let's uh, look at three frameworks that we can then flesh out and apply to Afghanistan and potentially um, future U.S. foreign policy. At least a, an initial fluid understanding as things are unrolling very quickly. As you mentioned, after 20 years and over 2,400 U.S. deaths and untold uh, hundreds of billions, maybe even over a trillion, and all the human desperation that we saw in, the, in some of the the video of um, U.S. aircraft leaving Kabul airport and quite a messy and chaotic exit. It's going to take a while for even journalists and think tank analysts are starting now, just starting now to kind of understand it. And historians will be on working on this for at least a generation or more. So let's start out with the, um, the dominant theory in terms of how to understand international relations. And it's sometimes called structural realism or neorealism or real politique. Most easily seen through the works of Henry Kissinger and Nixon as they looked at managing their relations with um, the Soviet Union and China during the height of the Cold War. The assumptions are a handful. One, the basic assumption is that the international system, the international environment, is anarchical. It is without laws. And that therefore, each country, each state's primary concern is survival as an independent, autonomous entity. So two, therefore, nation states are the principal actors, international organizations, non-governmental organizations, multinationals. Those are all secondary, if not tertiary. Three, these nation states interacting within the international environment that's anarchical, they're interacting as coherent, unitary, whole states pursuing their self-interests, their national interests, their national security interests, which of course is primary as survival as an independent autonomous entity. Of course, with this idea of an international anarchical environment and, and states interacting pursuing survival as an independent entity, competition and conflict of the course is assumed to be the norm. Lastly, the point would be is you would think about relationships being win-lose, not win-win. So every interaction is, there's no mutual gain. It's a relative gain. It's a win-lose situation. And so, as I mentioned earlier, a clear example of this is the Cold War, right? The Soviet Union and the U.S. threatened each other. Therefore, from the U.S. perspective, anything that was anti-Soviet Union was good, and anything that was good for the Soviet Union was bad for us. Morality is not a factor in this world. It's not 
moral or immoral, it's amoral. Morality does not matter. And so I was thinking when you were discussing the fact that we think of states as entities, independent entities, I was immediately thinking, well, why would Vietnam be important to us? Obviously, we could, you know, if we wanted to spend all the resources and treasure, we could potentially just crush them. But it seems like what you're saying is Vietnam was only important insofar as we thought it was important to the Soviet Union. Therefore, pushing back against Vietnam was in our interest only because it was against Soviet interest. Yeah, it, it's not necessarily important to the Soviet Union as, as per se. It's, it's more about, is the Soviet Union gaining in power and influence and strength by going ahead and spreading geographically? Okay. Again, it's still a U.S. versus Soviet Union win-lose situation. And if the Soviet Union, it was thought during the Cold War, if the Soviet Union was to gain territory influence and strength by controlling other territories, they would be winning and we therefore would be losing. Okay. Very interesting. So the key concepts from our first theory here, which you call neorealism, realpolitik, is that nation states are the primary actors. International organizations such as the UN are secondary or tertiary. Also, the World Health Organization would be secondary and tertiary. And there is no right or wrong. There is no moral universe in relations between states. This is sheer survival of the fittest. All right, so we'll keep that in mind, and why don't you carry on then? The, the next framework to think through, okay, is particularly in the post-Cold War era, where the U.S. is the sole superpower, neorealism understandings would be less powerful because there is, of course, if we are the sole superpower, the international environment is not as threatening. So therefore, it's not an anarchical or lawless international environment that would define U.S. national security interests. Those U.S. national security interests would be defined internally or domestically, not through the international structure, the international system. So... This is key, particularly in the post-Cold War era, as we get into the application part of our conversation, you'll see in the 1990s and after, humanitarian intervention becomes a key discussion point. So the key criteria as we move from understanding U.S. national security interests not as a function of an anarchical international environment, but as something that has to be defined internally. So, national security interests are not innately driven toward a long-term achievement of well-thought-through, shared, and stable prioritized goals. You're starting to hear me talk about the underlying assumptions of rationality, right? Mm -hmm. Goals often need to be clarified first. Long-term national interests and short-term objectives need to be defined. Of course, domestic politics is the constant struggle to define those issues. So long-term, well-thought-through, shared, stable, prioritized goals 
is not a function of a domestic political process, which we see principally after the Cold War is done. Part of that that we'll talk about here in a little while goes back to decision-making theory. And one of the early scholars of this is somebody by the name of Graham Allison, who writes a very influential book called Essence of Decision in the early 70s, actually 1971. And it's looking at how were decisions made during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so again, we're going to look at within understanding U.S. national security interests through the domestic political process, we're going to see that national interest is not objectively defined and rationally pursued. National security interests interests are subjectively, subjectively defined and politically pursued. And domestic actors, many domestic actors within the state will define the issue, not as a coherent whole, but as almost individual subunits. So what the State Department is pursuing may not necessarily be what the Defense Department is pursuing, which may not be what the intelligence community is pursuing. You may have individual subunits pursuing different sets of goals. So right now you're describing something that I might recognize from watching the news today, but you're saying all the way back in 1971, we're seeing this splintering of different national security objectives because different agencies maybe aren't all on the same page with a unified, clearly articulated strategy. And, yeah. and, and also, are you are we assuming that say, from World War II through the Cuban Missile Crisis, there was more unity of of articulated purpose amongst the agencies. I guess what Graham Allison is starting to explore, okay, in, in the classic essence of decision, is that our understanding of decisions, which assume to be always rational, right, long-term, stable, prioritized goals, lots of information gathered, cost-benefit analysis, maximizing you know, those decisions, may not be the case. So as a quick aside, one of the things during the Cuban Missile Crisis, okay, in terms of a bureaucratic politics competition to define national interests, right? One example might be the Air Force and the CIA okay, fought and therefore delayed the oversights of the island of Cuba. They were each pursuing what they thought was, oh, we're better at this. And so there was a internal debate about who would go ahead and do the overflights of Cuba to see and get a better sense of what missiles and that kind of stuff are there. Okay, so I'm beginning to understand Allison a bit better. In fact, what he was saying is that our assumptions that there was some sort of coherent, unified pursuit of a single objective amongst all of these agencies and departments was actually a myth. And he was able to demonstrate this in his 1971 book. And it should make us call into question, or it helps us explain when you have big organizations like governments, they aren't these monolithic things. There are lots of warring factions within. 
Yeah. And doesn't, that doesn't mean rational decisions aren't sometimes made, but they're not always rationally, rationally, as we understand it, kind of out of a microeconomic standpoint. It's not always a rational decision-making model. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. And, and also the second part of this, you were talking about how domestic politics shapes decision-making and shapes foreign policy decisions. Can you just talk a little bit more about that? Sure. There's not only inherent tensions between the three branches that all high school civics classes discusses, right? But you have to look at how does public opinion shape the environment by which Congress and, and the appropriating committees that give money think about things. What's the tension not only within the executive branch, we just talked about it, many bureaucratic political entities. What's the tension between the executive branch and the legislative branch in terms not only of money? Lastly, the idea of interest groups, right? Interest groups represent chunks of political opinion. How are they helping to shape the defining debate within executive government agencies and within key congressional committees. So there's lots of moving parts. You, we can give you example after example. There's lots of moving parts in terms of the defining of an issue. And we're seeing this happening live with Afghanistan decision-making right now. But we'll, we'll just hold off on Afghanistan. Whether it's domestic or foreign policy, the defining process is highly fluid. And once a decision's made, it doesn't stay made. It can get remade. <laughs> okay, so we've discussed Allison and realpolitik or neorealism. Do you want to introduce another broad perspective? Yeah, one thing that has been coming, particularly in terms of, I mentioned in the post-Cold War era, one of the major debates in terms of U.S. foreign policy was the idea of humanitarian intervention. And for at least a decade now, there's been discussions around, quote unquote, nation building. And there's one person that I've been following for a while. His name is Dobbins. He comes out of the RAND think tank. And he goes ahead and highlights, his name is James Dobbins. And he's, he's gone ahead and highlighted a couple of key things. Just as a, as a backdrop, he had, was, he comes out of a very large and extensive background in terms of being special envoy for not only Afghanistan and Pakistan, but also for Kosovo, Bosnia, Haiti, and Somalia, right? Some of the, ma some of the major humanitarian interventions, nation-building exercises that the U.S. has undertaken for the last several decades in the post-Cold War era, right? And so he has highlighted, well, most commonly in the press you'll hear, oh my gosh, we are not so good at nation building. And he highlights a couple of key points. One is that, no, that's not fully true. Whether it's right after World War II in terms of Germany, Japan, and South Korea, but even more recently, we've been somewhat successful, at least the, the countries are stable, both in terms of Bosnia and the Dayton Accords in 95, and also Kosovo in 1999. Now, there's been a number of, let's call them non-successes, 
whether it's Somalia as, as Bush 41 moves into the Clinton years, whether it's Haiti. We mentioned Vietnam a little bit earlier, right? And Iraq and Afghanistan would also fall into that category of non-successes. And so as we think, because this is obviously more and more in the news now, right? Can we do nation building, yes or no? He's a little bit more rigorous in his thoughts and analysis that we need to look at the level of manpower, both in military and police, to stabilize the situation, to foreign aid, and the amount of money we're going to go ahead and pump into the country to keep it stable and provide some allegiance to that civil society, that new civil society. Three, a time duration of the level of commitment. And he talks often about at least a decade. Mm-hmm. Those are the, the top three. Lastly, he'll, he'll bring in terms of looking at what's the general regional neighborhood look like. And if it's conflictual, we'll therefore need to go ahead and up the resources we're pumping in in terms of manpower and dollars and time. And of course, coming out of Somalia, the concept of unity of command. What you didn't mention in there is whether it's worth our effort. That's true. That, that's, and so um, he addresses that indirectly. So if we realize the amount of resources and time that's needed to be successful, we can then go ahead and decide, is this worth our effort or not? Is it worth our effort in terms of hypothetically expanding the rights of women and girls, Mm -hmm. which we might discuss here in a little while? Well, I mean, we've done we've done uh, quite a bit on some theoretical perspectives and we keep uh, dancing around the subject of Afghanistan. Should we just now dive right in? All right. So September 11th, 2001, Al-Qaeda launches a successful attack on the United States. And how do we start thinking about that action and our response? How do you approach that? Well, I mean, it's it's pretty cut and clear, right? We're attacked, as you mentioned, in 9-11. It is a a war of self-defense. And if you want to include an element of morality is, of course, as a just cause, right? Because it's self-defense. If you don't, if you don't want to do that, you, of course, would say, okay, put the moralities to the side. This is, we were attacked, staying with the structure or neorealism, right? We were attacked, we will defend ourselves. And the, here I think the structural realism argument kind of falls apart because it wasn't a nation or a functioning or viable nation that attacked us. It was something quite different, an organization. So going back 20 years, I seem to remember some debates that these Al-Qaeda fighters didn't quite fit into our preconceived notions of realpolitik and, and nations. Indeed, they weren't even considered legal combatants, per se, because they were non-uniformed, irregular forces, and this led to Guantanamo and all these other things, correct? This wasn't the Soviet Union launching a Soviet uh, nuclear missile. This wasn't some other type of invasion. This was 
a terrorist attack. And did, did that kind of break any of these these traditional views of of how we interact in the world? No, and here here's why. Actually, Bush the son, forty three, made the point of if you are hosting. If you, the country of Afghanistan, is hosting this non-state actor of Al-Qaeda, you are one in, one in the same. We will take you both on at the same time. So therefore, again, that non-state actor needs somewhere to be, and therefore it is a country okay, as a whole, unless, and, and here was the offer, right? Unless Afghanistan and particularly then the Taliban, would hand over al-Qaeda, they were then one and the same. And therefore, the country, the nation state, is a unitary whole and was attacking the U.S. and would need to be interacted with in a military way. So again, they just that, that assumption of a non-state actor is has to be somewhere. And in this case, al-Qaeda was in Talib, the Taliban Afghanistan. Right. Okay, so we decide to invade for the just cause, as you noted, and I think fairly rapidly the Taliban was ousted. I can't remember how many weeks or months it lasted. Al-Qaeda is disbanded, and, and, then, and then what are we thinking? What, what is the thought process that the U.S. is going through? Because there's a long time frame from the defeat of the Taliban to essentially today. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the war of self-defense is launched. It is overwhelmingly supported at home. And in the, in the first handful of months, the U.S. quote-unquote wins the war, right? Al-Qaeda leaders are killed, captured, or flee, flee Afghanistan. The Taliban is removed from power. And so, as you bring up, what next? What now? Right? Do we leave? Do we uh, minimize in terms of counterterrorism strikes? Or do we quote unquote nation build, all right, or counterinsurgency? In other words, we're going to build up the infrastructure to such, such an extent that this will never happen again. So, again, you know, those are almost the three basic options. We won, let's get out, declare victory, it's done, right? Two, do we move in a direction of counterterrorism strikes. So if anything pops up, we don't necessarily need to be there or in, in any large force and just take it out quickly. Or do we going to go ahead and rebuild the whole foundation of that nation? That becomes the key questions. I'm already thinking now back to Allison and decisions being made, but then they are remade and Maybe clearly there was no lengthy analysis of how long this would take, what indeed our objective was after defeating the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. So what is our objective now? How much money will it cost? Is it worth it? How long should we be there? All of those things that uh, Dobbins later discusses are not, or are maybe in this process, but there's no decisions are being changed, made, and remade. So taking Dobbins and Allison together, if we consider, as you said, potentially Afghanistan 
being unsuccessful in the unsuccessful category of nation building, at least we have two thinkers who kind of help us understand reasons for the lack of success. Yeah, I mean, this is obviously going to get teased at. All this stuff in terms of, you know, what's going on in the National Security Council? What's how how are the commanders on the ground interacting with the Pentagon and state and the agencies? This stuff will get teased out over time, right? Starting now to start to see this thing comes out in the various think tank and, and journalist discussions. So, for example, Bush's quote-unquote war czar for Afghanistan and Iraq, a gentleman by the name of Lieutenant General Douglas Lute, he in 2008, he gives interviews, says, quote, he found 10 distinct but overlapping wars in progress. Let me say that again. He's the war czar for Bush, overseeing both, coordinating both war efforts, both in Afghanistan and Iraq. He says he found 10 distinct but overlapping wars in progress. And here's some of the ones he mentions. The CIA is running its own covert paramilitary war. The Green Berets and Joint Special Ops commands are each having their own wars tracking high-value targets. The CIA is sponsoring an Afghan National Directive for Security. There's a training and equipment command. On and on it goes, right? So we go back to Graham Allison and the idea of bureaucratic politics in multiple multiple subunit state actors, multiple bureaucratic actors within the same state, mm-hmm. all moving in various different directions. But that, that, that would just kind of give you what's likely to come out in the near and the years and generations after, you know, we get access to all the documents and, and the discussions about what actually happened in, like I said, the National Security Council or you know, interact, interaction between Langley and what's going on in the field and all that kind of stuff. The other point we discussed in the first part of our discussion today was political opinion and how that is, shapes decision making. So domestic politics. Over the course of 20 years, what have you seen? How has domestic politics been shaping this effort? For me personally, I, I don't think that I mean, people in the U.S. have opinions about Afghanistan, but I don't get the sense that many Americans were changing their voting behavior based on what was going on in Afghanistan. So uh, how, how do you read the influence or lack of influence of domestic politics or voting behavior on 20-year war? Yeah, I mean, the, the polls clearly show that the that people are tired of the war in Afghanistan. Is it a top priority issue that would be act, quote unquote, actionable in terms of voting or not voting? Not likely. Traditionally, and, and we may, we're likely to see this coming up next year, right? It, it'll be domestic issues, right? So it's gonna be the idea of what's going on in the economy, what's going on with COVID, what's going on Maybe with things like Hurricane Ida, those will be the things that resonate. But over the long haul, I mean, actually, Biden um, actually campaigned on getting us out, right? One of the many reasons for Obama's went back in 08 was 
he said, I voted against the war in Iraq. So does public opinion shape an environment to make foreign policy decisions? Yes. Is it a direct correlation? Unlikely. Okay, so there were a number of surges, and these were efforts to figure out some precise goal, some precise endpoint, and and these happened at several times over the last 20 years. And there were a series of different commanders coming in on the ground. One interesting quotation that I read from the Inspector General's report on Afghanistan from a couple years ago, and this again goes back to Allison and bureaucratic decision-making theory. One general said, this isn't a 20-year war in Afghanistan. We've fought 20 one-year wars because there's such turnover of troops and experts and this and that. You know, you go in for a year and then you come out, a new administration comes in, they remake the decisions. As you said, I like when a decision is made, it can be remade. So there's a lot of that going on and there is no overarching strategy, no unified strategy. Right. And just and just listen to what you're saying, right? No long-term, stable, prioritized goals, i.e. back to structural realism or neorealism. As a, a final point on Afghanistan, before we move to the Biden doctrine, what about this humanitarian necessity argument? We should stay in Afghanistan for the women and the girls, for freedom of the press, in order to build a stable society, a stable civil society, a representative democracy in Afghanistan. So there you'd almost see our first our first two frameworks thought through, right? So in a neo-realist or structural realist or or real politic world. The goal, and it's goal number one, and it's always goal number one in a, in a national environment that's anarchical or lawless, morality is secondary if, if considered at all. Spending finite resources in terms of the military and dollars would be prioritized towards things that are real threats to us, the U.S. So... Biden has talked about this quite extensively, right? He's brought up the idea he needs to, we, we have plenty of things with re- reference to Russia, right? Including cyber. China is clearly being much more aggressive. The nuclear proliferation issue is key, not only in Afghanistan's border country of Pakistan and the forever war or forever tension between India and Pakistan. But of course, we have Iran and North Korea. And that's just for now, right? If those efforts go forward, nuclear proliferation will even further expand and be even that much more of a problem. Okay, so this is a good objective way to think about humanitarian intervention. Let me just mention in terms of you know, we, we highlighted a little bit in terms of nation building and where does that fit in terms of our, our agenda, right? And Dobbin's work in terms of identifying ways to be more successful in terms of our nation building exercises. And so 
let me just mention two things that kind of highlight where we were with Afghanistan. So we already talked about early on the early quick, quote unquote, military win. Well, then our efforts quickly shift to Iraq. So as a problem, so to kind of give you a sense of where we are in terms of manpower. Early on, we had 8,000 troops, 8,000 troops at the end of 02, 8,000 troops for a country that had roughly 22 million Afghans. Compared to our success in Kosovo, where we had 50,000 U.S. and NATO troops for under 2 million Kosovars. So just the manpower comparison, right? 8,000 troops for a larger 22 million populated country of Afghanistan versus 50,000 U.S. and NATO troops for the relatively small country of 1.9 million people in Kosovo. So Dobbin's point is that manpower matters. Manpower matters, right? The same thing. That's key one. Key two, how much money was getting pumped in to provide economic stability and allegiance to this new government, right? For Kosovo and the Kosovars, each Kosovar was getting, for several years, was getting roughly $1,600. For Afghanistan, 50 hmm. It goes on, right? To build out this argument further, right? Bush's czar, Lieutenant General Lute, talks about the same thing, not only right at the beginning of the war in Afghanistan, but halfway through it in terms of 08. The same argument. For manpower, 150,000 troops in Iraq, 67,000 troops in Afghanistan. Foreign aid, several billion dollars per year for Iraq. If you look at the charts, relatively nothing for Afghanistan. And this is an area where the border is, let's say, call it undermanned on the Pakistani border, essentially the supply route. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that, that just helps to build out that third framework of, of nation building. Right. So again, it can be done successfully. It can also be done unsuccessfully. Or yeah, you have better chances when you actually collect the data that helps us make for a more fertile ground for nation building. I'm, I'm curious, just as a brief last point, does Dobbins mention anything about cultural differences, historical differences. Yeah, no, just look at the examples he chose, right? So, you know, you'll hear that you'll hear that argument, which is a which is a great point. You know, okay, well, back in terms of Germany and Japan, the culture allowed for it, right? The infrastructure, the, you know, the human the education, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff was good. Well, okay, he then points to a relative success in Kosovo and Bosnia. Not necessarily two uh, areas that are known for being industrialized giants. Mm-hmm. He makes the argument it's much more about the resources that you're going to input into it, and for the length of time. If you have, if you're in a nasty neighborhood like, say, Afghanistan, it would necessarily need to be more resources and potentially over a longer time. And therefore, linking it back to the Biden doctrine, right, or his approach to foreign policy, is it worth it? In a world that yeah. we're moving into, is it worth it? Yeah, and so we're seeing this uh, realist tinge now in Biden's foreign policy 
pronouncements. And let's move into our final section for today. I'm just going to read some quotations, short phrases from his 31st of August address to the nation. And just for the listeners, you'll hear some of these key words that Professor Durand has been using, echoed, and indeed said by President Biden. So let's just look at this first one here. And here Biden was responding to people who said, we ought to have stayed, the U.S. ought to have stayed in Afghanistan. Biden said, to those asking for a third decade of war in Afghanistan, I ask, what is the vital national interest? In my view, we only have one, to make sure Afghanistan can never be used again to launch an attack on our homeland. He goes on to say, if we had been attacked on September 11th from Yemen instead of Afghanistan, would we have ever gone to war in Afghanistan? I believe the honest answer is no. That's because we had no vital interest in Afghanistan other than to prevent an attack on America's homeland and our friends. And that's true today. So how do you read that passage? That would be very consistent with our first framework, right? The world is lawless and anarchical. Our priorities are clear. We are moving out of the post-Cold War era. We have external threats that we need to address. We have finite resources in terms of military and dollars. We need to go ahead and prioritize efforts that would deal with a surging China that's more and more assertive. We need to have those resources deal with a Russia which is assertive not only geographically, whether it's in the Ukraine and or with cyber. We have nuclear proliferation issues that we need to deal with. Okay, These are just where our priorities in this lawless anarchical world need to be. That's what Biden would say. Whether you agree with him or not. But I just want to read another quick passage, which again echoes what you just said. Here's a critical thing to understand. The world is changing. We are engaged in a serious competition with China. We're dealing with challenges on multiple fronts with Russia. We're confronted with cyber attacks and nuclear proliferation. Exactly what you just said. And then Biden makes this point. We can do both, which is to say fight terrorism and take on new threats that are here now and will continue to be here in the future. And I thought this final point was great. Biden said, there's nothing China or Russia would rather have, would want more in this competition than the United States to be bogged down another decade in Afghanistan. And this goes back to what you were saying about the world being an anarchical place, yeah? Yeah, it's, it's an anarchical world. That's the underlying assumption. And we have finite resources. I mean, yes, we are the largest economy, depending on how you look at it, for a while, right? We have obviously the largest military by far, right? And if our goal is security, where do we want to dedicate those limited resources? In places like Afghanistan, and this is, we saw this towards the chaotic, messy end, 
whether it's with special forces and or over the horizon weapons and or all the intel assets we have to tar- for targeting, will it be more difficult? Sure. But can it be done from afar without actually large numbers of boots on the ground? That's, that's his argument. Yeah, and we'll, we'll have to wait and see what happens. Well, well we're going to see it. We're going to see it unfold. And obviously, one scenario would be that indeed some sort of terrorist organization does nest itself in Afghanistan once again. They do launch an attack that is successful on the U.S. homeland, and then what happens, Steve? Well, the the wars are I mentioned earlier, who worked for both Obama and Bush, right? Lieutenant uh, Douglas Lute just had an interview uh, in the Post. He looks at it this way. He says, quote, if the goal is security of the homeland, we have counterterrorism capabilities today that had no parallel on September 12th, 2001. We can literally strike anywhere in the world nearly overnight with precision based weaponry with a global network of counterterrorism partners. Our homeland is a much harder counterterrorism target today than it was on September 11th. So, so there's the bet, right? You're asking, what if it gets through our hardened homeland security defenses? Bush's war czar, General Lute, argues we have the capability without all those boots on the ground. And we're actually doing it in dozens of countries as we speak, mm-hmm. whether it's throughout sub-Saharan Africa or elsewhere. And again, I think the, those aren't considered moral or immoral interventions like we see in Afghanistan. You can interpret them in many different ways. Some people have argued, of course, well, we should stay in Afghanistan and we should also be in North Africa and other places and make sure women and children are treated better. And then you get down into this black hole of which countries are worth the blood and treasure, and that takes us down all into the humanitarian intervention route, which it looks like Biden wants to avoid. Right. Especially with, again, a rise in external threats with finite resources to deal with those threats. I just want to focus on one last comment that he made about the humanitarian side of the Biden doctrine. So after saying he was going to pull out of and did pull out of Afghanistan because it was not in our national interest, he then says this. Let me be clear. We will continue to support the Afghan people through diplomacy, international influence, and humanitarian aid. We'll continue to speak out for basic rights of the Afghan people, especially women and girls as we speak out for women and girls all around the globe. And I've been clear that human rights will be the center of our foreign policy. Now, he just said that national interest was the center of his foreign policy, and now he says that human rights will be. Is there some way that I should better understand that passage? I I think we're actually starting to see it uh, now on as the debate goes forward, right? The, the leverage point which the U.S. has, which is considerable, is the extent that we impact 
to, to our benefit, the amount of economic resources we have, right? So if you're thinking about Afghanistan particularly, right, the Taliban must now govern a very poor country. Various UN agencies are talking about um, estimates that a third of the population is likely to starve. Last night, I saw a news broadcast which where, where uh, the head of the UN Human Rights Agency, UNHCHR, estimated that almost half of the population okay, will need humanitarian assistance. So the leverage point, of course, will be how do we individually and collectively, whether it's through the IMF or coalitions of our Western partners, support these human rights efforts economically, not necessarily militarily. But how does that fit into some of the frameworks we were discussing at the very start of the show? What I what I see, I didn't actually see a contradiction in those. What I've seen instead is that Biden is creating a or or reinforcing a dual sense of foreign policy instruments, military force. He wants to not devalue, but use much more carefully, and all the other tools we have in our arsenal to influence behavior. He wants to empower, as it were. So if your question is the role of morality in U.S. foreign policy, fortunately or unfortunately, it has a long, long historical run. I, I don't foresee us going down a path where human rights and helping and humanitarian aid uh, will go away. It will just have to be much more cal- carefully calibrated, right? And that... Humanitarian efforts, those humanitarian efforts will likely become even more out of global uh, collective efforts, whether it's the idea of providing vaccines to the rest of the world for COVID or working together in terms of things that we'll have to collectively do, like climate change. So to succinctly say it, I don't see that moral component of U.S. foreign policy going away. I think it's just going to be, one, um, addressed often more collectively, and two, more carefully calibrated. Great. Okay. So I just want to move to my final point. And now I will just give my own final opinion here, which I'm trying to avoid for most of this podcast, but I will get to my own opinion now. And President Biden said something that I think was an important note to end on, and it's something that personally I agree with, but I wanted to throw it to you to talk about. Biden said, there's nothing low grade or low risk or low cost about any war. It's time to end the war in Afghanistan. And as just a succinct announcement of both the moral side as well as the real politics side. I think that quotation captures some of these things. Uh, wars aren't low grade. They're not low risk and they're not low cost, no matter how you see it. And I thought that that quotation kind of neatly summed up the Biden doctrine, as it were. Since wars cost so much in so many ways, we need to be really careful about it. What do you think? And there, there's 
always unforeseen things that can happen, right? So, especially in this whole uh, asymmetric type of warfare, right? Whether it's IEDs or whatever, right? All of a sudden, things can go haywire. And does that mean you got to go ahead and then pump in another 10,000 troops to stabilize it or not, right? It's, it's a war and it's hugely unpredictable. It's hugely mm-hmm. unpredictable and it can be uh, catastrophic, especially if things start to uh, escalate. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, well, today then we remember 20 years after September 11th, and we remember 20 years of war in Afghanistan. And today we've discussed some various theoretical perspectives to to look at things. And thank you, Professor Durand. You've done a wonderful job giving us a little bit more objective insight into how various people and how we can start thinking about international relations in a much more clear-sighted and less hysterical way. So thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. And noting, of course, in your specialties, your focus on diseases and the importance of non-traditional issues in national security and international relations. Maybe one day, since Afghanistan is in the news now and we wanted to talk about it, but maybe one day we'll talk about the non-traditional national security issues such as, as you said, migration, climate change, and indeed pandemic disease. So maybe we'll hold that for the future. would love to have you back. Thank you so much. just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.